Nicholas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 5, England's 1881-82 Tour of Australia, Percy's Promise. The summer of 1881-82 brought another English representative side to an Australia that was still getting over the excitement of the exploits and execution of Bushranger Ned Kelly the previous year. This side was arranged again by Lily White, with support from Alfred Shaw, a veteran of the 1876-77 tour, and Arthur Shrewsbury, another leading professional. The tour had come about in part due to a strike led by Shaw and Shrewsbury during the previous English summer against their counting side, Nottinghamshire. Believing they were not being compensated fairly, the players went on strike. This spare time allowed for the two Knots players to join with Lily White to organise an eight-month tour of North America, Australia and New Zealand. The Australian portion of the trip would include four first-class fixtures against combined Australian sides, matches which would later be classed as test matches. As well as Shaw and Shrewsbury, the playing members of the squad included George Ulliott and Tom Emmett, who had played on the previous tour and had set out of the 1880 test in England due to their experience during the Sydney Riot in 1879. John Selby, who had played in the inaugural test, also made the tour. Five other players would be making their test debuts on the tour. The 11th and final player was a familiar face, Billy Midwinter, who had played in the first two tests for Australia and been famously kidnapped by W.G. Grace on the 1878 tour. He would become the first player to represent two nations in test cricket when these matches were retrospectively given test status. After a North American leg that only just broke even from a financial perspective, the English arrived in Australia. They took part in some minor games against local New South Wales sides before facing the Colonial team, winning by 65 runs. The next first-class fixture was against Victoria, where Shaw's side managed to win by 18 runs, despite being forced to follow on. Arthur Shrewsbury, with 80 not out in the second innings, set up the opportunity for Ted Peake to take six wickets, bowling Victoria out for 75 in the final innings. These victories gave the English a strong platform from which to feel confident going to the first match against the combined Australian side, which was to begin on New Year's Eve 1881. The Australian side were lacking Fred Spothoff, who had been suffering from an early-season injury. The team would again be led by Billy Murdoch, joined by Alec Bannerman, Joey Palmer, Harry Boyle, Percy McDonnell and Jack Blackham, who had been on the 1880 tour. Tom Horan, who had played on the inaugural test but missed the 1880 tour, was also selected. Four players would make their debut in the match. Victorians William Cooper and Edward Evans, New South Welshman and veteran of the Sydney riot Hugh Massey, and, most famously, all-rounder George Giffen, who became the first South Australian to play test cricket and would go on to be the first test player to score 1,000 runs and take 100 wickets in their career. A glorious day attracted the largest crowd seen at a test match to this stage with 16,000 people flocking to the MCG. Shaw won the toss and chose to bat on a well-prepared pitch, opening with debutant Dick Barlow and George Ulliott. Upon the commencement of play, Barlow was out to Palmer with the score on five, bringing John Selby to the crease. In partnership with Ulliott, the two scored freely, only providing a handful of half chances and exhausting the bowlers. It wasn't until Ulliott was dismissed for 87 with the score on 142 that the Australians got a break which was soon followed by the run out of Selby for 55, with Massey receiving much praise from the crowd for his efforts in the field. Bates, who had come in at four, took to the bowlers, taking 12 off one Cooper over, followed by 14 off Palmer. He would compile 58 before being the fifth man out at 227, caught by Giffen off Boyle. Wickets would then fall steadily for the rest of the afternoon, with Midwinter contributing 36 against his old side, until England were all out at the close of play for 294. Evans, who had bowled 71 overs, and Cooper both managed three wickets for the Australians. The next day was a rest day. When the game resumed on the 2nd of January, rain showers would interrupt the day and create a bleak atmosphere. This didn't dissuade the spectators, with an even bigger attendance of up to 20,000 coming to watch the day's play. The Australians opened with Massey and Bannerman, but only a few overs into the innings, Massey was stumped off the bowling of midwinter. 
This brought the captain to the crease to join Bannerman. The two put on a half-century stand and looked comfortable until Ulyat managed to skittle both batsmen within the space of a couple of overs. The dismissal of Murdoch received high praise, with the bowler deceiving the great Australian batsman with a fast off-break. Number four, McDonald scored a breezy 19 before also being bowled, this time by midwinter. The score was now 4 for 113, and George Giffen made his way to the crease in his debut innings to join the set batsman Tom Horan. This partnership would be the most significant one of the innings. Giffen acted as the more defensive of the two, allowing Horan to go on the attack. He cut particularly powerfully, playing all the bowlers with comfort. Giffen would start to unfairly strokes as his innings progressed, particularly his drives, though he was the more loose of the two and offered a court and bowl chance to Shaw, which the English captain could not complete. The two brought up their 100 partnership before Giffen was finally bowled off his pads from the bowling of Emmett for 30 in a partnership of 107 with Horan. Blackham came and went for two, with the score having moved to 6 for 226, bringing Joey Palmer to the crease. Horan continued to score fluently, bringing up his 100 off the bowling of Pete with another cut shot. Palmer at the other end found the boundary regularly, and the two had brought the score to 6 for 277 at the close of play, only 17 behind the English score. Horan ending the day on 106 not out. Better weather greeted the players for day three. Although this was to be a timeless test, played until the conclusion could be reached, the English were scheduled to sail in the morning of the next day to begin the New Zealand leg of their tour, meaning the match would have to conclude before this point. The captain of the ship agreed to delay their departure to the afternoon to afford the greatest possibility of a result. Horan and Palmer resumed their partnership and soon took the Australians past the English score before Palmer's dismissal for 34 would spark a collapse that would see the Australians all out for 320, a lead of 26. Horan would end up being run out for 124, somewhat controversially, as it seemed to the crowd that Pete had not taken the ball cleanly before breaking the bales. It had been a chanceless knock. Wickets were shared evenly amongst the English bowlers. Ulyat and Barlow opened again for the English and quickly erased the deficit before Ulyat was stumped off Cooper for 23. Barlow and Selby combined for a half-century stand, and Bates did the same with Selby after Barlow departed. Selby eventually finished on 70, while Bates scored 47, both dismissed by Cooper. The bowler then raised Australian hopes of an English collapse by quickly dismissing Midwinter and Emmett for single-figure scores, completing his 5-4 and leaving them 171 in front with only four wickets in hand. Shrewsby was then dismissed for 17, again off Cooper. However, Shaw and Scotton managed to take the English to the close of play at 7 for 238. Cooper had dominated the Australian bowling performance, taking six of the seven wickets to fall. However, the day was also categorised by an uncharacteristically sloppy performance in the field, with many chances missed by the Australians that they normally would have expected to take. When the final day began, there was a slim hope for a result. However, Shaw and Scotton continued their partnership, putting on a total of 83 before Shaw was dismissed for an even 50. The last two wickets fell quickly to complete the English innings on 308, setting a target of 283 for the Australians. With little time left before the English had to depart, there was no chance of the Australians chasing the total, who would end the match at 3 for 127, with Murdoch and McDonald not out. This would be the first draw in Test history. Both sides had acquitted themselves well and were evenly matched throughout. It was made mention in the local papers about how far the Australian game had come, where 20 years before English teams would comfortably beat local sides of 22 players, whereas now the Australians could match the best of the English in an even contest. The English would spend a month playing local New Zealand sides before returning to Australia where a second combined match was arranged to commence in Sydney on the 17th of February, the first such match to be played in Sydney, although a possible match on the previous tour was not played due in part to the effects of the Sydney riot. The English won the toss in front of 6,000 spectators and chose to bat on what was considered to be a good pitch. The English were unchanged, but there was conjecture about the composition of the Australian eleven. A week prior, New South Wales had played Victoria in a first-class fixture. Billy Murdoch had scored the first triple century in Australian first-class cricket and the second in all first-class cricket after WG Grace, whilst Tom Garrett and Sammy Jones had made hundreds. 
Both Garrett and Jones were included in the combined side on the strength of these performances, with Jones making his test debut. It was expected that Spotheth would play, given he had taken six wickets against the Victorians. However, he did not make the team. Most surprising to the crowd was the selection of George Coulthard to make his debut, with many believing it had been a mistake. Coulthard, a Victorian, was not popular with the New South Wales public had he been the umpire who had given Murdoch run out against Lord Harris's 11, the incident had sparked the Sydney riot. Coulthard also had a poor first-class record and would play little part in what would be his only test. Bannerman, Cooper and Giffen, who was delayed in Adelaide, all missed out from who had played in the previous game. England opened again with Ulyat and Barlow, whilst Palmer and Evans commenced the bowling for Australia. Surprisingly, Murdoch would take the wicket-keeping role, even though Blackham was in the team. However, Blackham would go on to demonstrate that he was just as effective without the gloves as with them, winning high praise for his agility in the field at mid-on and mid-off. This reflected in the whole of the Australian's fielding effort, being much better than that of the first test. This strong fielding put extra pressure on the English batsman, and after the dismissal of Ulliot with a score at 39 off Evans, wickets would fall consistently throughout the rest of the innings, with the largest partnership after the opening being only 25. Barlow would top score with 31, while Scotton would score 30 in the English total of 133. This had taken 115 overs, all bowled by Palmer and Evans, Palmer being rewarded for his skillful bowling by taking seven of the wickets to fall, whilst Evans took the other three. The Australian innings commenced with Massey and Blackham opening. Massey quickly put the English bowling to the sword, racing to 49 with nine boundaries before being caught at point by Shrewsbury off Bates. Evans joined Blackham to take the Australians to a strong position at stumps of one for 86, trailing only by 47 with nine wickets in hand. The game commenced the next day with a much larger crowd of almost 16,000 watching. The Australians were hoping to develop a big first innings lead on the good pitch, however would let themselves down with poor running, with both Evans and Horan being run out. Blackham would be dismissed early on the day for 40, whilst Murdoch, the local hero, disappointed the crowd by being caught at mid-off for 10. He was compensated somewhat by receiving a gold watch and trophy at lunch valued at £100 in recognition of his 321 against Victoria the previous week. The score was exactly the same as the English when Murdoch was dismissed, the sixth wicket to fall. However, the debutant Jones held the innings together with 37, being the last man dismissed with a score at 197, a lead of 64. He received great admiration for his efforts due to the quality of the English bowling and feeling that he had to deal with. Bates was the most successful bowler with four wickets. The English would end the day at none for eight as rain brought an early end to proceedings. Due to the rain on the night of the second day, when the match resumed after the rest day, there was concern that the pitch would be worse for batting. However, under cool but clear skies, the English openers put pay to that concern. Ulyan and Barlow would combine to put on a century opening stand. Sloppiness in the field, particularly from Coulthard who dropped Ulyan on 10, and Murdoch who twice missed stumping opportunities cost the Australians the opportunity to break the game open. They were also non-plus when Barlow was given not out to an appeal for Court and Bold off Jones when he was on 30. Ulyan would finally be dismissed with the score on 122 for 67, falling LBW to Palmer. Wickets then tumbled with regularity throughout the remainder of the innings, with the English unable to establish a decent partnership. Shrewsbury would score 22 and Shaw 30, but these were the only other contributions of substance. Palmer would finish with four wickets to complete 11 for the match, whilst Garrett would also take four for the innings. The Australians would be chasing 169 for victory. Massey and Blackham would again open, but Blackham would be dismissed for four in short order. Massey again batted with freedom, going at better than a run a minute before being dismissed for 22 just before stumps. Murdoch and Horan would see Australia through without any further loss with a score at 2 for 35, still requiring 134 for the victory. Upon the resumption of play, the two not-out batsmen slowly constructed a partnership before Ulliott managed to get one through Horan for 21. McDonald then arrived to partner Murdoch, with the two progressing the score to 113 before McDonald was dismissed by Shaw for a well-compiled 25. Murdoch, who had held the innings together, was soon after dismissed one short of his 50, with Australians still needing 42 to win. 
However, Sammy Jones continued with his good form in the first innings, and combined with his fellow centurion from the match against Victoria, Garrett, the two polished off the final runs required with little difficulty, although Garrett provided a late chance that wasn't taken. The Australians had completed the first victory of the series, mainly down to more consistency in the batting, with the bowling and fielding seemingly being comparable between the two sides. The English would travel to Victoria to play another first-class match against the locals, winning by eight wickets, before returning to Sydney for the third match against a combined Australian side to begin on the 3rd of March. The pitch was of far worse quality than the previous match, with many bumps and undulations making it difficult for batting. The English were again unchanged, whilst Bannerman and Giffen returned to the side in place of Coulthard and Evans, with Blackham taking the gloves back from Murdoch. Poffer still remained unselected, and his absence along with Evans contributed to a much smaller crowd of 3,000 attending for the first day. Shaw again won the toss and chose to bat. He may have regretted his decision when both openers had been dismissed with the score on only eight. Palmer would claim three more wickets to leave the English at 5 for 56. Scotton then joined Shrewsbury to put on a substantial partnership. Shrewsbury took advantage of some wayward bowling from Garrett to compile a splendid knock, dominating his partnership of 92 with Scotton, who was dismissed for 18 when the score was on 148. Neither Emmett or Shaw could stay along with Shrewsbury, who was eventually ninth out for 82, well caught by Boyle off his own bowling. He did 12 fours during his innings. The final wicket took the score to 188. Palmer claimed another five wickets, whilst Garrett had three and Boyle two. The Australians opened with Massey and the returning Bannerman. However, the off-breaks of Willie Bates, who had opened the bowling, would prove devastating, with Massey, Horan and Murdoch all dismissed off his bowling by the time the score was 16. The batsmen had contributed to their own demise with some undisciplined stroke play. McDonald joined Bannerman and the two managed to take Australia to the close of play without further loss. Bannerman was on 15 whilst McDonald was yet to score. It would be McDonald though who would play the decisive innings of the match the next day. Percy Stanislas McDonald was born on the 13th of November 1860 in London. His father, a barrister, took his family to Melbourne in 1864, where he would soon be elected to Parliament, serving as Attorney General. Percy would be educated at prestigious boys' schools St Patrick's and Xavier College. He joined the Melbourne Cricket Club and would make his debut for Victoria against New South Wales in 1878 when he was only 18. It would not be a great start as he would bag a pair. He wouldn't play another first-class game for two years, but would be selected to go on the 1880 tour, where he would make his debut for Australia in the first test in England, where he would score 27 and 43 in Australia's loss. He would top the averages for the Australians in the first-class games with a top score of 79 and, despite not excelling in first-class cricket the next Australian season, would continue to be selected for Australia. It was in the first innings of the third test that we produced a knock of outstanding quality. The second day was marred by showers. The pitch was already a difficult one for batting, and the expectation was that the English would be heavily favoured by the improved bowling conditions. However, they couldn't take their chances, with McDonald being dropped twice, once on the boundary and once a point, before 100 being brought up. With Bannerman resolute and slowly building his score, McDonald built his total fluently, playing all around the ground with great skill, and was particularly devastating on the drive. When the day was finally called off due to rain, the same batsman that had walked on at the beginning of the day walked off. Bannerman had taken his score to 59, whilst McDonald was unbeaten on 72. The Australians were only 42 behind, with seven wickets in hand. The pitch was still a good one for bowling as the third day dawned. Around 6,000 people, including the governor of the colony, were in attendance to watch the play, as Bannerman and McDonald resumed their innings. McDonald started as he had left off, by hitting the second ball to the boundary, and continued to score freely whilst Bannerman settled in behind his defence. McDonald would give a third chance, this time to Shrewsbury, who dropped it a point. Soon after, he brought up his 100 to warm appreciation from the crowd. As lunch approached, the two batsmen still had not been separated, putting on a partnership of 199. Following lunch, however, Bannerman was dismissed without adding to the score. He had made a defiant and chanceless 70, and with McDonald had given Australia the advantage. The innings then began to collapse as the English bowlers got on top, losing the last six wickets for only 47 runs. 
McDonald was six out for a magnificent 147. He had batted for 250 minutes and hit 17 boundaries. Other than Bannerman and McDonald, no other Australian player had reached double figures, highlighting the high class of their partnership. Pete ended up with five wickets for the English as the Australians took a 74-run lead. The English would require an excellent batting performance in order to give themselves a chance of winning the game. However, the pitch had not decreased in difficulty, and Garrett and Palmer took advantage for the Australians. Seven wickets had fallen before the English had got in front of the Australian score, and it was only through another strong batting effort from Shrewsbury that they hadn't been bowled out by the end of the day, finishing on nine for 121, with Shrewsbury 39 not out. Garrett had five wickets and Palmer four, with the majority of these being clean bowled. The final day of the match saw the English innings end quickly for 134, with Shrewsbury being the last man out to Garrett for 47. This left the Australians only requiring 61 runs to win. The pitch was still difficult for batting, and Australia lost four wickets chasing down the total, including the first innings century maker for nine, but Horan and Jones saw the side home. Australians were now an unbeatable 2-0 up in the series, but there was little time to celebrate as both teams had to catch the train that night to Melbourne for the final test, which was commencing only three days after this one had finished. For the fourth and final test, Spofforth finally returned to the side in place of Jones. There was much expectation that we proved a key difference between the two sides. Shaw again won the toss and chose to bat on a wicket that looked excellent for scoring. Ulliott faced the first ball from Spofforth in partnership again with Barlow and snicked it for three. From there on, Ulliott would dominate the day's play. He would hit 13 boundaries in a four-hour stay at the crease, finishing with a score of 149 when Garrett finally had him caught by Blackham. He was supported throughout with good contributions from Bates, Midwinter, Scott and Emmett. The Australians put on an excellent display in the field, with Blackham coming in for high praise, particularly for the two stumpings that he affected. The first day ended with the English 7 for 282. Within half an hour of day two commencing, the English had been dismissed for 309. Garrett had finished with another five-wicket haul. Spotless was slightly disappointing on his return with 1 for 92. The Australians opening with Murdoch and Bannerman made the most of good batting conditions by putting on 110 when Bannerman was dismissed court and bowled midwinter for 37. The English had cycled through seven bowlers looking for a breakthrough, such was the docile nature of the pitch. Horan joined Murdoch and the pair added another 39 before Horan was out for 20, with Murdoch falling soon after for a well-combined 85, demonstrating power and finesse in his range of strokes. McDonald then took up where he left off from the previous test with aggressive batting, keeping the scoreboard ticking over with first Massey and then Giffen, who was out second last ball of the day caught on the rope. The Australians finished at 5 for 228, still trailing by 81. Following the rest day, the match resumed on the Monday. McDonald took his score to 52 before he and Blackham were dismissed at the same score, leaving the Australians 7 for 247. Some late hitting from Palmer, who hit 5 fours in his 32, brought the Australians close to parity, with the innings closing on an even 300. Midwinter had finished with four wickets, whilst Bates had three. The pitch was still a good one for batting, and the English top order took full advantage. Elliott backed up his first innings tons with the 64, dominating a 98-run partnership with Barlow, before he was caught by Palmer off Boyle. The Australian bowlers were still unable to make much headway, as the only other wicket to fall for the day was Barlow, run out by Murdoch for 56. The Australians again set a high standard in the field, but the day closed with English at 2 for 234, Selby on 48 and Bates compiling 52. Despite the game being advertised as timeless and play scheduled for the next day, the match ended in a tame draw. The English had a prior engagement against a country Victorian team that led to the sides agreeing to call off the match so the English could have time to travel to the game. Thus, the series would end in a 2-0 victory for the Australians. A win built off the stronger batting of the Australians, with Bannerman, Murdoch, Horan and McDonald all making substantial contributions with the bat, whilst Palmer and Garrett being more incisive bowlers than their English counterparts. Two has played in good spirits though, and Alfred Shaw indicated that he hoped the Australians would be treated the same while they departed on their tour of England that winter. 
While Shaw would go on to play first-class cricket for another 15 years, taking over 2,000 wickets at the lowest average of anyone has taken that many wickets, he had played his last test match. He had come to Australia with a large reputation, but never quite lived up to it with his performances, although he did take one five-wicket haul in the first ever test. His influence in cricket was felt through his promotion of professional players' rights, being prepared to strike to get the compensation he felt they deserve. The next generation of English bowlers would build upon his work, and following this tour, it would be another 10 years before they would lose another series in Australia. It was also the last matches for Tom Emmett and John Selby, regular opponents for the Australians in their first years of test cricket. Shrewsbury would go on to be a consistent opponent for the Australians and would demonstrate his quality as a batsman time and again. He would not be part of the team, though, that would face the Australians that winter at the Oval, the game that would shake the English game to its core and establish the oldest of cricket trophies, the Ashes. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.